Now it is. It was on before, so you must have heard me singing, everybody. Sorry about that. Matthew 24, 13 for 24. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. I'll pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, again, we look to you as the author and teacher of your word to teach us, to speak to our hearts, our minds, our souls, our spirits, God, that we would hear your voice and yield to you. We want you to be um, just finding um, our hearts to be a worthy resting place, God, for your word, and that you would minister to each of us as we need. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we all um, like things to be going right, things to be perfect even, so don't ever go to a t-ball game <laughs> or to a coach pitch game because you're not going to see perfection. But when you go to a major league baseball game, you're really hoping that maybe you'll see perfection. A game with no errors, a game, maybe a perfect game, perfect pitched game, which have been very few, and you go, I was there when it was a perfect game. But that doesn't happen in life very much. And one of the hardest things is to expect perfection and not get it. And then to realize it may never change. And then to have no hope that you would ever see perfection. I think this parable of the tares here is for those who hope for perfection and then perhaps become so discouraged that they will never see it that they give up hope. Keep in mind the context here of these parables is that the Pharisees have gotten right up to the threshold, perhaps crossed over, to blaspheming the Spirit of God. So now Jesus is pulling back from speaking plainly, and he's speaking in parables now, so as not to heap more judgment upon them, those whose hearts are hard. So he's given now two parables, the parable of the sower that we looked at last week, which is more about the sower than it is about the soils, but there's a lot of instruction there about the soils as well. And he says the sower is not careless in his casting of seeds, but he is generous. It's a good seed. It's the seed of his word. And he wants all to have an opportunity to hear and respond no matter what the condition of their heart might be. And now he speaks and with this parable, and he's going to explain it beginning in verse 36 this parable is also given to the multitude, 
but again, the explanations are always being reserved for the disciples. So he says in verse 36, Then he left the multitudes, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field, because they did not understand it. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil." And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun, in the kingdom of, the, of their father, who, he who has ears, let him hear. In the parable of the sower, the seed is the good word concerning the kingdom. In the parable of the tares, the seed is believers. So it's not the word, but those who have placed their faith in Christ. And he sows the believer out into the world. The field is the world. The enemy comes along, Satan... And he decides he can't do anything about the believers, but he can um, sow alongside them. And he sows his own sons. And the enemy is the devil. And so the tares or, or the weeds are actually unbelievers who are coexisting with the Christians. So a few things we can just note right off the top here is that this stage of the kingdom that he's describing again, is not true of the millennium. You will not have in the millennium this co-mixture, co-mingling of believer and unbeliever, at least not at the beginning. At the end, that will again be the, be the case, but not at the beginning. So this is his kingdom now, which is not political, it is not physical, it is spiritual. And in this present time where Christ is reigning from heaven, not on earth, as people come to faith in Christ, they are called sons of the kingdom because the kingdom will be theirs. They are living in anticipation of that time when Christ will be on the earth ruling over a physical, literal, political kingdom. We are waiting for that. And until that time, we will live with unbelievers. God knows this. He didn't cause it. He didn't cause the tares to be sown. Satan did. He doesn't like it. This is not the way that he would want it in his kingdom. And ultimately, there will come the day when it won't be this way. But for the sake of the wheat, he says, we're going to allow things to be as they are. Things will coexist this way. This is really, I think, a very important um, lesson that he's giving here because it helps us to be realistic about this time that we call Christendom. Some would say that he's specifically talking about unbelievers in the midst of the church. That could very well be. At least he's speaking generally about in this world, Christians and unbelievers will coexist. Because the field is the world and the field is not the church, 
I tend to think that's what he's trying to get across, is that we need to understand the times that we live in and not be too negative about it. It is what it is. God has permitted it. It's not perfect, but it's not what it's going to be. And so those basic truths can help us live well at this time. The situation of Christendom, the inter-Advent kingdom, the now between when Christ first came and when he will return is not what it should be. It is not what it will be. God is not pleased with the current situation. That tells me that God is not responsible for everything in the current situation. Some things lie squarely at the feet of Satan, not God. We should take that into mind when we consider the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, but God is not responsible for all the bad things we see in this world. There is free agency, and Satan is a free agent, where God has given him a certain amount of leniency, and he operates as he wills to operate, and it is not consistent with the will of God. God can use it, God can even work it for good, but it is not what God wants to happen. It's not going to stay this way. It will change. We need, I think one of the lessons here is that it's important for we as Christians especially to stop being so negative about the current world situation. It is what it is. It's not going to get better before Christ comes again. And we should not pull ourselves out of the world. He is not going to pull us out of the world yet. That's one of the big lessons here. God, Jesus Christ, is saying, let the wheat and let the weeds coexist. Do not pull the weeds out yet. So he sees that for however in his mind, we don't question his judgment and his wisdom. He sees this is important for the wheat at this time to coexist with weeds. So there's no point in pulling yourself out of the situation when God himself is not going to pull you out. Stop being negative about it. Don't pull yourself out of it. We aren't being profound or insightful when we see the problems. We're largely just being negative. And I'm speaking to myself. Jesus has determined that this is the best thing for the wheat at this time. He will fix it at the end of the age. Nobody else will. When John Calvin was alive, he wanted um, Geneva to be the birthplace for the kingdom of God on earth. And he seemed to be convinced that if he could just get rid of all the non-believers and all the heretics, including burning them at the stake, then if he could make Geneva a perfect place where nobody was there except people who agreed with him, then the kingdom would spread throughout Europe and all over the world. When the Puritans came to this country, they had the same theology. And they really wanted their colonies to be populated exclusively by people who are the same mind as them. This is not what God has said. 
we need to realize that until Christ comes again, we will coexist with unbelievers. We will not bring his kingdom in. He will bring his kingdom in. And as bad as it is, God himself has determined this is best for the wheat at this time. I don't fully understand that, but God makes no mistakes. One thing I think that we can, to a limited degree, appreciate is that this is the only time we have an opportunity to learn much that we will never have an opportunity to learn in the eternal state. We cannot learn perseverance, except right now. We cannot learn patience, endurance, and all virtually all the attributes that you would think of can only be learned in opposition. And in the eternal state, there will be no opposition. That's why I appreciate it so much when my, many years ago, when my older brother died, he was 25, I was 20, really struggling with why God would allow that to happen. And my heart at a crossroads of whether I'm going to walk away from God or, or, or move toward Him with my questions and know that my questions might never get answered. Somebody put in my hands a little book called Don't Waste Your Sorrows. And it was a timely book for me. And the author just simply pointed out what I just said. There are many things that, you, that we have an opportunity to learn now that we will never again have an opportunity to learn. Don't waste your sorrows. This is a grievous time to live. It is a difficult time to live. It is not perfect. It is not what God wanted. But now God has determined it is what is best at this time. It's going to change. There is hope. But until God brings about that change, God in his wisdom has said, we will coexist with unbelievers in an evil world. When God changes things, fixes things, if we can call it that, it will be by him taking out of the world the weeds, not the wheat. So when he says here at, at the end of his explanation, verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. This is clearly not the rapture. When the rapture takes place, it is the believers that are removed. Here, it is the unbeliever that is removed. I believe that the rapture takes place prior to the tribulation. I think I'm on good grounds with that because, as one person has noted, there is not a single tribulation passage in Scripture that mentions the presence of the church. That's a pretty glaring omission. Not a single tribulation passage in the, in the Bible mentions the presence of the church. So there's good reason to say the church won't be around. And once the church is removed, there will still be people coming to faith in Christ, wheat. And at the end of the age, which we've already noted would be the end of the time of the Gentiles, and the very end of that will be that seven-year period of tribulation, great tribulation such as the world has never seen. Matthew 24 is going to go into detail on that. At that time, at the end of that time, Jesus sets foot on the ground again, and he, through his angels, gathers up all the unbelievers and judges them. He's going to take care of it. 
Until that time, we wait, we coexist in an imperfect world, but we wait with hope. Now he's going to give two parables that talk about the smallness of the kingdom and then speak of how large they become. It becomes. Verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it, becomes lar- it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So let me just swat away first um, one of the problems that the skeptic has here with believing that the Scripture is the Word of God. And that is, they say this is clearly an error, that Jesus um, knew that the mustard seed was not the smallest of all seeds, and yet he called it the smallest of all seeds. So either he is accommodating himself to the misunderstanding of the people, and we're going through this in bibliology right now at his hill. Accommodation is what? Bad word, bad word. They see they good students. They understood that. Jesus, good, A plus. Je, Jesus never accommodated himself to the misunderstanding of the people. He is the truth. He spoke the truth. He corrected when there was untruth. And so the other option is he didn't know, which means he isn't God. There are seeds which are smaller than the mustard seed. The orchid and the tobacco seed are both smaller than the mustard seed from what I've been told. What he is saying, though, is not that it is the smallest seed in all the earth, but it is the smallest seed which a person plants in a garden. Of garden variety seeds, it is, in fact, the smallest seed. Nobody plants orchid or tobacco in a garden. You will plant beans and spinach and corn and that kind of stuff. And so of garden variety seeds, it is in fact the smallest seed. And in fact, it becomes the largest of all plants in the garden. It would seem that Jesus is simply saying he wants us again to understand the nature and character of his kingdom at this time. First, he's told us with the sower, not all people are going to hear. And of those who do hear, not all people are going to endure and bear fruit. And then he wants us to know that it's going to be a kingdom, it is a kingdom that coexists with both believer and unbeliever. And now he wants us to know, don't get so negative and so discouraged about the state of the kingdom that you fail to see its growth. That the kingdom, we can see this today, that even though maybe we can't point to people that are coming to faith or big revivals that are taking place, this we know. The kingdom is immeasurably larger today than it was when Jesus spoke these words. Immeasurably larger. By anyone's account, that Christianity is the world's largest religion today. We know not all those who claim to be Christian are in fact Christians, but that's part of the point here. There is believer and unbeliever who are coexisting together, even within the church, though I don't think that's the main thrust. His kingdom has grown from almost a minuscule size of 11 disciples, and then at the upper room in Acts chapter 2, 120, to now there are more than a billion who would claim the name of Christ. That's pretty impressive. And it is, in fact, at this time, 
the largest of all religions. Is it pure? No. But of those who would claim Christianity as their faith, it is the largest religion on the earth. Even as Jesus said, this small mustard seed will become the biggest plant in the garden. And then he says about leaven, verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three packs of meal until it was all leavened. And then he goes on from there. He's going to give another explanation. So leaven, this is, this is the one that probably has caused the, the most problem, and I don't know that I've got it right. These parables are difficult. Um, there are all kinds of take on it, but, but most people, at least in the dispensational camp, and I'm in that camp, would say the leaven is negative, and it speaks of the permeation of sin within the church. I don't personally see it that way, um, even though... I'm a dispensationalist. I'll take exception with John Walford and, and, um, and Toussaint and others who are very strong. Arnold Frutenbaum, they're all good company, and so I'm in, you know, I'm, what do I know? But to me, it looks like here that this is something positive. Now, most folks want to say every time you see leaven in Scripture, it is negative. That's, to me, a bit of an overstatement. We know in Exodus 25 that there were 12 bread cakes or 12 loaves that were to be kept in the temple at all times. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were leavened, and they were in the temple. We know in Leviticus 7.13, we're told that he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. So at times, offerings had to be with leavened bread. We know that when Jesus, in John 6, fed the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish, it was leavened bread. And in that context of having just fed the crowd leavened bread, he says, I am the bread of heaven. Not I am the unleavened bread of heaven. So I think that people are making too big of a deal when they are saying that leaven is always negative in Scripture. Why is it in the temple if it's always negative? Why is Jesus calling himself the bread of heaven and not the unleavened bread? Why are there prescriptions on how to offer leavened bread if it's always negative? So I think that what Jesus is simply saying here is just as leaven permeates and infiltrates, so will the kingdom of God. The contrast is with a nation. Nations do not permeate and infiltrate other nations. And I think if we see here the, the marvelous wisdom of God, where he is able to take what is meant for evil and turn it for good, that Israel, the nation, has rejected him. God's goal from the very beginning when he raised Israel up was to reach the world through a nation, that all the nations of the earth would glorify him through the nation of Israel. It never happened. Solomon had his chance as the king of a nation, and all the nations came to him from around the world. He had his chance to introduce them to the God of Israel. It didn't happen. Well, there's a better way for the nations to be impacted than with another nation, and that is to be infiltrated from within. That's what the church does. 
And so it's a marvelous thing. I remember taking Progress of Redemption when I was in college and Mr. Hatch talking about this, how God is now casting the seed, which is in this here in the terrace, the seed are Christians, casting them out into all the world so that the seed is in nations permeating, infiltrating from within. I think that's a positive thing. And that's how leaven is being used here in my mind. He's saying this is how the kingdom is going to spread from within. That Christians will go back to their homelands and after having maybe heard Christ somewhere else and they'll go back and they will share the kingdom, they'll share Christ with others and his kingdom will expand to every corner of the earth from within the nations. Then he gives two more talking about the value of the kingdom. Verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Doesn't seem very ethical to me, um, but Jesus is not talking about whether it's ethical or not. He's just pointing out this is what this clever man did. He happened to be walking through somebody's field. He stubs his toe looks down, starts moving dirt around, treasure chest, covers up the treasure chest and says to the owner, I'd really like to buy your field. What's it worth? The guy might have said, oh, it's worth $100,000. And he says, why don't I give you two hundred? dollars Deal. And all the while, he knows, the buyer knows it's worth many times more than that because of the treasure chest that's in the field, but he doesn't bother to tell the owner. That's not the point. Okay, The point is not whether this was ethical or not. The point is this man who stumbled across the treasure sees something of such value that the owner of the field doesn't even see it. Once again, there are a lot of folks here that say that this is um, a picture, on this occasion, it is a picture of Israel because they say that, that the treasure of God is the Jewish people. And so he's talking here that Israel is one nation within a, within a world of nations and they are the treasure. But verse 44 starts out and says, the kingdom of heaven, not Israel. I'm stuck on that. Every one of these parables starts, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. So to me, in my simple mind, I'm just going, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything that most people realize. How much we need to know that? Because we live in a time, and this is not new, where Christians are treated as imbeciles as just foolish people for investing their lives, selling out for Christ. Paul says, I count everything else but rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. Do we? I'll never forget being in seminary and going over to visit my great uncle and, and cousin and as soon as my grandmother and Patsy and, and the other ladies were out of the room, these two men, they just, just pigeonholed me. What are you doing spending your life, wasting your life studying the Bible? Two Christian men. At least they said they were. Leaders in their church, community leaders. And they're going, what is the matter with you that you would spend your life studying the Bible and preparing to teach it? Do those men understand the value? Absolutely not. And we face this all the time, where Christians are making value judgments about God's Word, 
and about God's ways and God's people. And those value judgments do not esteem highly enough those things. Christians, this is for us. But we need to understand that we will never, the world will never agree with our value judgments. Aren't we seeing that now with abortion? People are losing their minds because we're saying it's not a clump of cells. See, they're undervaluing life. How can you overvalue life? More to the point, the world puts no value on Christ and his kingdom. Hates it, disparages it, undervalues it. We should be different. The costly pearl seems to me the same message just repeated in a different way. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. There are those that would say the pearls here are Gentiles, that the hidden treasure are, is Israel and the, and the pearl of great price are Gentiles because pearls are in the ocean and the sea is a picture of Gentiles. Okay. I think that's complicating it personally. Like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. The kingdom of Christ is worth any investment we can make. You will never waste your life buying into Christ. I'm not saying you purchase your salvation. I'm saying you sell out. You take your hands off of your life. You invest completely in his kingdom. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness above all else. I think that interpretation is consistent with what God has already been saying here in Matthew. I hope you didn't buy any Bitcoin. I bought a little bit. It's even a... More of a little bit right now. There's all, so many things, so many things where the world says this is a good investment. You will never hear the world say Jesus is a good investment. Jesus is the one investment. Put all your money in that bank. You can't lose anything. But this is what Jesus is telling us. And finally... Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the end of the tribulation, before Christ establishes his millennial kingdom. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So another parable that speaks about the judgment to come. The terror spoke about that. The dragnet speaks of it. God knows what's going on. And in the end, God is going to make one large judgment. He's going to gather. When Jesus comes again, he's going to gather the entire earth's population to himself. And with the help of the angels, they're going to be going believer, unbeliever, believer, unbeliever. And they're going to be putting them on two different sides of Christ, on his right, right and on his left. 
and all those who have not placed their faith in Christ for salvation will be taken away into judgment. And all those who have believed upon him will be invited into his kingdom. Postmillennialists believe in a rapture, but they put it at the end of the tribulation. The premillennialist puts the rapture before the premillennial pre-tribulationist put his, puts the rapture before the tribulation, but the post-tribulationist puts it at the end of the tribulation. Some would put it in the middle. Again, I think all the evidence is for a pre-tribulational rapture, but here's the problem with the post-tribulational view, that the rapture takes place at the end of the tribulation. If all the unbelievers are taken out, and that's what says happens with this dragnet. And all the believers are taken out because they're raptured. Who goes into his kingdom? Who is having babies in the kingdom? There's no good explanation for that if you believe in a post-tribulational rapture. But we know that people are taken straight into his kingdom from what these verses say. And that those people will later on, because they're still in their physical bodies... They'll be marrying, having children, and at the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed from, his, from the abyss, and he's going to create havoc on the earth again. There will be a great rebellion, and there will be people who turn against Jesus. Where did those people come from? Preach a post-tribulational rapture cannot answer those questions. So to me, the simplest thing again is that, he, that the rapture takes place first, and then at the end of the tribulation, this judgment takes place. There's one final, and this is the eighth and final of the Proverbs. It's in verse 51. It doesn't look quite as much like a proverb, but a parable, but it is. And it says, verse 51, Have you understood all these things? And they lied and said yes. Because <laughs> they didn't any more than we do. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become um, a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. It seems that Jesus is just saying, scribe is one who would handle God's word, who would, who would, who would write it down on new, on new scrolls. And so he's a student of the word as well as a writer of the word, a copyist. But he would understand very clearly as he copied the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, what the Old Testament says about the kingdom. What he could not get from the Old Testament is what Jesus is saying in chapter 13 about the kingdom because it was not revealed. These were mysteries. The Old Testament said nothing about this commingling of believer and unbeliever and it being his kingdom said nothing about the mustard seed and the leaven, the size and expanse of his kingdom and how it will permeate every, every part of the world and all of its institutions. said nothing about the value of the kingdom in, in comparison to everything else. So these are new truths. And the scribe who has become a disciple of the king will see both the old truths of the, new, of the Old Testament and these things that Jesus is now revealing. So what are the lessons overall? Not all will hear and respond in faith. And not all who do respond in faith are going to persevere or endure to the end. 
His kingdom at this time means coexistence with unbelievers. It is not at this time a perfect kingdom, but it is exactly what he wants it to be at this time. Though he didn't create it, it, create it, it wasn't his will. He wants it is for our good. The kingdom is going to grow immeasurably in population, in people who believe, not politically. And as much as it grows, we also know from Scripture that it will never be more than a remnant. The kingdom, Christ himself, is to be valued above all else. A Christian should be as a scribe who understands both the Old Testament truths about the kingdom and Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. Both are true. Both are to be embraced. The sower looks like he's apparently indiscriminate. He is not. He is not careless. He is generous. With the tares, the sower looks like he is indifferent to the condition of his field and to the condition of the wheat. And at times, if we're honest, we all agree, it just we wonder, God, do you care? When we see all that's happening in the world today, in the long leash you seem to have, been give, have given to Satan, we see so many institutions that are being torn apart before our eyes, not the least being marriage in the family. Do you care? Why do you allow the weeds to seem to thrive among the wheat. But he is not indifferent to the condition of the field or ignorant of it. He is permitting it, and in his wisdom he says, this is what is best for the wheat. With the mustard seed and leaven, the nature of the kingdom is apparently insignificant. It is small in the beginning, but it's, it will become large, it will be pervasive in its influence. We should not dismiss its impact or power. The hidden treasure and the costly pearl, it appears that our appraisal of Christ and his kingdom is inaccurate, when in fact it is not. No one else is going to understand but other Christians. But by selling all and yielding completely to him, giving your life completely over to Jesus as as I've already quoted Paul, considering all else rubbish is not foolishness, it's wisdom, because we know what we're acquiring, pressing on to lay hold of that for which we have been laid hold of, wanting to lay hold of Christ himself. And in the end, a judgment is coming. It is inevitable. It is all-inclusive. No one's going to be omitted. The sower is purposeful. He is concerned, not indifferent. The kingdom is significant and dynamic. There is no kingdom, no realm more significant than his. The value of the kingdom is immeasurable, incalculable, and the character of the kingdom is exclusive and final. Some questions of application. What is my response to the good seed? That's where it all began. With the sower sowing his seed, some on hard ground, some on other kinds of ground. But have I responded to the good seed of his word? Have I placed my faith in Christ alone for salvation?
for eternal life. We should be encouraged until that time when God separates out believer from unbeliever. God knows when it will be. Am I ready? Have I become so negative and discouraged that I've given up hope? Have I begun to think that this world is all that it's ever going to be and I see that it'll never be perfect? Or am I looking beyond this to that time when the sower becomes the reaper and he will come again and he will make all things right? The kingdom is about the king and our response to him. He is currently sowing, and the day will come when he will return and he will reap. It must have been so puzzling to the multitudes to have heard these parables and to have understood so little of it. Hard for us to understand as well, but that's why he's given some explanation for we who have believed. And as I said, he wants us to understand himself, his character. He wants us to understand the times that we are living in. And he wants us to be hopeful, looking forward to the day when he makes all things right. It's occurred to me that as our student body from his hill is preparing to leave this week, Thursday's their last day and they all um, scatter around the world on Friday. One of the things that occurs to me that this, these two parables, especially the first two, but all of them, all of them are really very significant. I thought this could be a commencement speech for students graduating from any Christian school. And as God now as, scatters them around the world, not to be so idealistic that when you go home and don't have the community that you've had, that you give up on Christ and his kingdom. The answer is not to give up. The answer is not to try and pull yourself out of the world, but it's to live where God has planted you and know that God is in control. Difficult, but God knows this is best at this time. And as we go through life, you are constantly going to be making value judgments. What is most important? Will it be what is eternal? Will it be Christ and his people? Anything else is unworthy. Making decisions based upon what is eternal Making decisions based upon what God says is significant. These are lessons for our student body as they prepare to leave, but really for all of us because all through life we're in the same place. Tempted to become so discouraged with the situation that we live in to think that God either doesn't know or God doesn't care. Neither is true. Tempted to think that the answer is to isolate ourselves and pull ourselves out of the world. That is not the answer. I heard someone say this just today, um, 
maybe Republicans should have spent more money investing in media, like making movies, you know, buying a production company or buying Twitter like Musk is doing, um, instead of these political action packs that we've placed millions and millions of dollars into. In other words, they're saying to impact society by being in the world, but not being of the world. The answer is not to form monasteries and to huddle as Christians, but where God places us to understand it's going to be difficult, but he is coming again. And in his wisdom, he has determined this is what is best at this time. And we all need to know this is not all there is. This is not all there is. And if we had our eyes fixed on the future, the eternal, the hope of Christ's return and of being with him, I think we'd all be tempted to be a little less discouraged. This is not all there is. Christ is coming. And we can pray as John did at the end of Revelation, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'll pray. God, thank you so much for these just practical illustrations here of your kingdom and of your heart, of your activity in this world. I pray that we would keep our eyes on you, eyes fixed on Jesus and on the things above while living in this world. I pray, God, that we would consistently every day be making those value judgments that reflect that Christ is our treasure, that we value him and his approval more than anything else on this earth, and that we would live, God, for your smile, for your approval, counting all things to be rubbish in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name.